This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Bravo. So praise God. Now here is the title of our message this morning, and it is continuing with the series titled The Freeing Truth About, and this is part 12, I think. So we're already on the 12th installment. And as you know, we take breaks in between. But generally, you know, we are going through these to put the series together so that it can be a great discipleship, but also Bible study series for anyone who's interested in time to come and for those of you who want to study it again. So the freeing truth about mansions in heaven. Now we know that scripture talks about mansions in heaven. And depending on your background, depending on the kind of teaching that you've had, and I know you may have heard me talk about this before, but I believe that today I'm going to share it with you with a little more clarity than I have in the past. But I know that there are many doctrines out there. We hear many people talk about this. And, you know, just my own experience before I received revelation of the wonderful gospel, the wonderful grace of God, and what I refer to as gospel truth, I used to be in an environment where I would hear mixed teaching of law and grace. And what I would hear with regards to mansions is, is that Jesus meant what he said. And he said that there are many mansions in heaven. And so <clears throat> I was encouraged to make sure, first of all, that, that I was on my way to heaven. Second of all, to make sure that I was contributing towards my mansion. Because the, the thought and the teaching was that, you know, the things that we do here on earth all convert into eternal treasures and things. And so it all helps build our um, mansion in heaven. And so the more we do for God, the more sacrifices we make, the more we perform, the more we earn and deserve, the more we work towards it all, the more we store in heaven. And then I would hear preachers who would claim to have had visions and night visions and night dreams where God took them to heaven and showed them these places all over heaven where there were certain mansions that were partially built. Some of them were just at the foundation. Some of them still needed the roof. Some of them still needed materials inside, you know, to make it beautiful. The stairs were missing and so forth. And, you know, and that was all used to encourage believers to do more, to give more, to engage more, and just get on this treadmill of merit and performance and earning and deserving. Now, at the time, it made sense to me because that's all I understood. But as I've learned to understand the wonderful gospel truth and understand what it means to be redeemed by grace and to understand the finished work of the cross, I realized that <clears throat> that wasn't and that is not God's heart. It wasn't Jesus' heart to convey that to us and try and put us on some kind of treadmill of performance and merit, you know, with a goal to have this massive piece of real estate in heaven. I mean, I still remember one specific preacher saying, you know, you better hope. And I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I hope you realize by now that I, not only do I abhor it, but I have a passion not to ever become like that. You know, be one of these preachers that manipulates, that uses the Word of God to try and contort people to do this and give and, you know, convince them of this. And yeah, I, we just don't do that. And I know sometimes 
we've been told that it's to our own detriment because we would get a greater response, a greater engagement, a greater giving if we were to do that. But I assure you that's not our heart. We don't want to do that. We want to preach the gospel truth and let that touch your heart. Let, the, let you see the value of what you're actually getting and then respond to that the way God blesses you. Amen. But anyway, so, you know, <laughs> I remember this preacher. He was... Uh, he had a fiery preacher tone and he was just screaming and letting it out, all emotions, you know, both barrels loaded and both firing at the same time uh, about mansions and about, you know, putting people really on a guilt shame and, you know, a, a trip, on, on a guilt trip. And he would say, well, some of you I can tell and I can see. And, and he would actually say this is by your giving, I can tell that some of you are going to have a shack in heaven. And you're just barely going to make it. And then he would quote the scripture, you know, how much I barely make it through the fire. And, you know, everything just twisted and contorted and, you know, aimed at, <laughs> I guess, manipulating and trying to get a better reaction from people. And I remember I was actually sitting in one of those meetings. And, I mean, it works emotionally, you know, if, <laughs> if that's where you are. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what if I do end up in a shack? And I thought, well, hopefully my shack will be next to some rich neighbors who can help me out. And so you have this whole entire picture, twisted picture, incorrect picture of what heaven is like. Because at the end of the day, you know, that makes heaven sound like it's not much different to the earth. There's still the wealthy, there's still the poor, there's still the mid middle class, and there's still divisions. And, you know, apparently God himself... Uh, you know, sets up the system. And so it makes you wonder, what's the point? It makes you question almost everything about heaven. And that's exactly what it did to me. I thought, okay, so not only do I have to fight for what I have here on earth and strive to be something and somebody here on earth, but also it's going to go on for eternity in heaven. And what I'm doing right now is impacting it now. And so, you know, all these thoughts and craziness would just flood my mind. And praise God for His wonderful gospel truth. And so that's why I want to share this with you with passion today. The freeing truth about mansions in heaven. What did Jesus actually mean when He spoke about it? And what was the point that He was bringing across? What truth was He teaching us? What was He telling us with this? Now, if you look at modern dictionaries, they all define it with a slight variance, but they're all saying the same thing. And we know that a mansion is basically a large, impressive house, right? It's this beautiful place. Some look like palaces. It may be a palace. Whatever it is, whatever scale it's at, whatever uh, neighborhood it's in, a mansion is regarded as a large, impressive house. So now think about this. Jesus used that term to illustrate the certainty of a believer's eternal place um, in, in God's presence. That's really what he was saying. And I'm going to show you that today. I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture. But So he wasn't talking about real estate. He wasn't talking about property that we would own eternally in heaven. I mean, I even heard preachers. I remember one time uh, listening to a Bible school lecture. Uh, on, you know, the end times and what the next life would be like. And, you know, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, what it's going to look like. 
and it does give some dimensions in the Bible. And so this one scholar worked it out, and he guessed, but he worked out the size of this new Jerusalem and what it would be like. Then he guessed and he figured out how many people probably would have lived and would have come into existence up to that point. You know, how many billions or trillions, I don't know. And he figured out exactly how much square feet each person would have as a piece of land for their mansion. <clears throat> and it was a large, large piece because it's going to be huge. It's going to be big. I mean, heaven, <laughs> it doesn't give us dimensions for heaven. Just look at our galaxy. There's no dimension. There's no measure. We, we're not able to measure. There's no end. How much more is heaven? Because that reflects the nature of God. And so I remember listening to this lecture thinking, wow. And, you know, I got all soaked into that. And I thought, man, this sounds impressive. But that's not what Jesus was actually teaching or saying. He wasn't having a real estate lesson on how we can get the best property and the biggest property in heaven. He wasn't doing that. What he was doing is he was using that phraseology, those illustrations. He was using them to illustrate the certainty that you and I as believers, that we would have an eternal place in God's presence because of Jesus and the finished work of the cross. And so let me show you that today. And you know, it's a certainty that he wanted his disciples to have right there and then after his resurrection. And it's a certainty that Jesus wants us to have while we live here on earth. Amen. He doesn't want us wondering, will I make it to heaven? You know, is, is my performance going to affect my going to heaven? And Am I going to be in God's presence forever and ever? He doesn't want us wondering about that, wasting time on questioning that. He wants us to have the absolute certainty when we understand what He did for us and what He did to redeem us and what it means to be redeemed by the finished work of the cross. There is a certainty that nothing and no one can take away. And that's what Jesus wanted us to have. He wanted us to be certain now. And he wanted his disciples specifically, because what you need to do is we need to put ourselves in that context. He has Jesus with his 12, and he's talking to them the night before he was crucified. And he tells them, guys, and I'm putting it in my own words, but he says, guys, I'm going to be gone for a while. It's not going to be the same. And so love one another, love God, take care of each other. But have the certainty that I will be back and you will have a certainty that you will be with me eventually in heaven. But also you'll have the certainty now that you are on your way to heaven and that you are guaranteed of an eternal place in God's presence. That's in essence what he was doing and you're going to see that today. And so he wasn't talking about property. He wasn't talking about actual physical buildings. He wasn't talking about mansions as we know them here on earth. He was using it to illustrate. So let me show you that. And so, like I said, here's Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before he was crucified. That's when this conversation takes place. This is when Jesus shares this. Okay. And so John 14 verse 2 and 3 from the King James. Here it is. He says to them, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare 
a place for you. And if I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, every single phrase and word is loaded here. And I don't know if I'll have enough time today to really expand on all that. But I'm going to do the best I can just to focus on what we are looking for the free and truth about, which is the mansions that he refers to there. And so <clears throat> another common misunderstanding about what Jesus said here is, is that he was referring to his second coming. Let's put that back on again and let's see. See right there it says towards the end of verse 3. He says, I will come again. Because that phrase is there, and receive unto myself, that where I am you may be also, it is commonly misunderstood that Jesus was talking about his second coming. Okay, so in essence, what people then understand when they see that is, is that these mansions are for our eternal future. Not that eternity is measured in time, because it's not. And so, and because of that, when he comes again, then we will have and see the, our, our mansions and we will be with him in our mansions with him. You know, that's kind of the thought. I mean, it just sounds crazy me saying all that now because now that I understand it, but some people believe that and some people think that's what goes on. And so, if he was referring to his second coming, then I have to ask this question based on what we've just read that he said. We have to ask and say, where are all those who have gone before His second coming staying then? Isn't that so? <laughs> if those mansions are all going to be given to us only at His second coming when He comes and He takes us, and then we will enter our mansions and be with Him, the question then is, all those that have come and gone, that have died before His second coming, where are they staying? If those mansions are only going to be given to us at his second coming. So already that throws a hole in that theory, in that belief. And then, of course, besides that, let's put that back on again. Watch us. Watch the first part in verse 2. He said, In my father's, what's the next word? House are many mansions. Have you ever seen a house that has mansions within it? <laughs> it makes no sense, does it? And so you see, there's also that confusing issue right there that we need to clarify. I mean, I have not gone anywhere and I have not seen anything where there is a mansion, I mean a house, and within this house there are mansions. It almost sounds like an oxymoron. It's, how is that even possible? How do you fit mansions in a house? It makes no sense, does it? And so I've heard all kinds of attempted explanations but today we want to see what does the word say? What does the original say? And so I've, I've taken that word mansions and I've looked at it in the Strong's Dictionary and watch how the Strong's Dictionary defines it. So he has the word mansions, there's the number, and it's the word Monet or Monet. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but let's go with Monet. And so it comes from a root word, 3306. And what it means is a staying... That is, watch this, residence, watch this now, the act 
or the place, abode, mansion. So the last meaning is mansion. It means first and foremost, a staying. It means the act or the place of abiding. You can put it this way. So you can see from the original that Jesus was not talking about property or real estate or an actual physical mansion, right? And so that word monet is used only twice in the Bible. And both times it is used by Jesus. And both times is in the same chapter when he was talking about the same thing. So we can see that when we look at the next part where he uses it, the Bible will interpret the Bible and we'll see what it actually, what he actually means. So in the same chapter, John 14 verse 23, Jesus now is speaking to Judas and answering a question Judas asked in the midst of this overall conversation. And watch what he says here to Judas about that. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And watch this. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's the same word, monet, where it says abode. And you saw earlier in the portion we started off with, it said dwelling place. That's another way you can translate it. And many of the direct translations actually say dwelling place. So you can see it's a place of dwelling it is not an actual physical structure or building. Okay? So there we see he actually, Jesus himself qualifies that it means to abide. It's a dwelling. It's about dwelling in a place. And so, <clears throat> but remember, we also saw that this word comes from a root word. So let's take a look at that root word and see what it means. Because when you attach this meaning to it, because this word comes from this, it'll help us understand it better. So here it is. It's the word 3306, you remember? And it's the word menor. And watch what its definition is. It is a primary verb. In other words, it's an action word. So it's not talking about a place. It's talking about an action, something that is happening even right now. It's a verb, and this is the verb, to stay in a given place, a state, relation, or expectancy. So you can see this has to do with the condition that a believer will find him or herself in when, <laughs> when they receive salvation in Jesus. So you can see again that Monet has to do with the act of staying or dwelling in a place, in a position, in a state, and not actual property, not actual physical mansions. You can see that clearly. I hope that you see that, because I've just shown you from the original, right? So now, having said that then, and everything else that I've said so far, we can put what Jesus said this way. Now, this is my transliteration, if you will. This is what I'm saying, okay? But I'm going to put it on the screen so you can see it. <clears throat> this is how we can put what Jesus said then, having shown you all that. He could be saying, Where my Father dwells, there is more than enough dwelling place for you all. And through what I'm about to go through for you, which is talking about His death, burial, and resurrection, you will know that with certainty. 
in essence, that's what he was conveying to his disciples and to us. Where my Father is in heaven, there is more than enough room, more than enough dwelling place for you. So don't be concerned that you're going to miss out or not make it. He says there's more than enough. And because I'm going to go and redeem you now, remember this was the night before he was crucified, because I'm going to redeem you now and complete my work, you will know for certain when I rise from the dead that that is the case for you. So you will live with a certainty that you will be with God for eternity, dwelling where He dwells. That's in essence the message that He was conveying. But He was using these big words such as mansion so that in their minds they could picture the enormity, if you will, the hugeness, if you will, of the chance that they will be in heaven with God for sure, in fellowship with Him. So He was giving them a reassuring statement. And in actual fact, I love the way the New Living Translation actually translates those two verses, which really clarify, and again, back up what I've just told you. So watch this from the New Living Translation. Let's read it. There is more than enough room. See? He wasn't talking about physical mansions. He says, there is more than enough room in my Father's home. See? If this were not so, I would have told you that I'm... Would I have told you, I'm sorry, that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, in other words, when He has completed, when He's, when he's risen from the dead, right? I will come and get you. Now remember... The King James more correctly translates that part and says, I will receive you unto myself. This isn't the best here in the New Living in that part specifically. But I will come and get you, or receive you unto myself, so that you will always be with me where I am. So really what he was talking about is once I'm finished my redemptive work, I'm going to show up and let you know that it's done. And you know that they saw him after he resurrected. And he says, and that way you will know that it is all done and that you can have the certainty that you will eventually be with me personally in heaven. That's what he was saying. So we see that there again. Now, just in case we're not really, really sure about that, and we should be by now, the context also clarifies this for us. Remember, I always say this to you. When you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, when you're trying to understand what Scripture says, always apply three basic principles. What is the first one? Read everything in context. Don't take things out of context because you'll get the wrong meaning. Don't let verse numberings confuse you. Don't give equal value to phrases just because they have their own verse number. Right? Just like a conversation... You understand the whole thing in context. You don't take things out of context, right? So read everything in context. What is the next one? Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Where else does it talk about that? Where else is that word used? And here's what it means. And we've been doing all that so far. Thirdly, and most importantly, look at everything through the finished work of the cross. Because that is the ultimate purpose of the Bible. That is the ultimate message of the Bible our redemption in Jesus, right? 
And so, we've let the Bible interpret the Bible. We're looking at everything through the finished work of the cross. Now let's look at the context. And you will see that it all comes, you know, just perfectly fits into what I've been sharing with you today. So let's read John from John 13, verse 36, which is towards the end of the previous chapter. And then we're going to go all the way through to 14, verse 6. It's not a very long portion, but you'll see that this is the immediate context of what Jesus was talking about. And it's going to give you the picture of uh, what I've said and clarified all as well. Now remember, this is the night before he was crucified. Okay, So they are concerned because he's just told them, I'm going to be gone for a while, but I'll be back. And when I'm back, I'm not going to be back the same way. And I'm not going to be with you all the time here, but eventually you will come where I am. But I want to make sure you understand, you, will, you can have the certainty that that is going to be so. That's in essence what he was doing. So watch us in verse 36, John 13, 36. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. So in other words, he's already alluding to the fact that you can't go and be crucified with me and go through everything that I'm going to go through in the next three days. But because of that and beyond that, you will follow me later eventually at the end of your life. That's the one way you can put it. Then he says in verse 37, But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. (laughs) Jesus answered, Die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And as you know, that happened. And so the conversation goes on here. And so now this is Peter questioning and trying to understand what Jesus said. This is why he clarifies. Now remember, this is the context. So he goes on in verse chapter 14, verse 1. It's still the same conversation. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. In other words, Peter, don't be troubled. The rest of you, don't be troubled what what I'm saying, what's about to happen to me. You believe God, you trust God, believe in me, trust me as well, he says. There is more than enough room in my father's home. In other words, I'm not going, Peter, because there's no room for you. I'm going because there's something that only I can do. But there is more than enough room for you in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And what did he do to prepare a place for us? He went and he died and was crucified and rose from the dead for us. That's the way he redeemed us, right? So this is how you know that he's talking about his immediate finished work on the cross. And so that's how he prepared the place for us, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he says, when everything is ready, in other words, when the work of redemption is finished, I will come and get you. Now, as I said to you, that's not the best translation there of that phrase. I will receive you unto myself is better and makes clearer sense, which is what the King James says. So that you will always be with me, where I am. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, I will rise from the dead. You will see me and that will give you the guarantee that you are redeemed. And because of that, 
He says, I will receive you unto myself. In other words, salvation will then be ready, will be made available, and you will receive it, and I will receive you to myself, so that at the end of your life, and when you are done, you will see me in heaven. Because there is more than enough place there for you. Can you see that? I mean, he's saying all this in context. Take it out of context and you'll end up with other doctrines. So then, he says in verse 4, And you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Can you see how in context it all makes absolute sense that Jesus was encouraging his disciples in the midst of what he's about to face and what they're about to see him go through so that they wouldn't lose hope, so that they wouldn't lose faith and trust in God. He assures them, I need to go through what I'm, what I'm about to go through. And you can't do it with me. You can't go through it with me. Only I can. And we know that. But then he says, don't worry, you're going to see me again. And when you do, it will give you the guarantee that you are redeemed. You'll have the option to receive it. And when you receive it, I will receive you to myself so that I know eventually at the end of your life, you will enter heaven because there's plenty of dwelling place for you there in my father's house where, where God dwells, right? I mean, I'm putting it in my own words. But that's, in essence, the message that Jesus was carrying across. It's sad how religion, traditional teaching, mixed law and grace teaching, has taken that and turned it into a, you've got to earn and deserve, and you better work towards it, and made heaven sound like it's a, just another form of what we have here, maybe just without sin. No, heaven is glorious. It is nothing like we have here, because there's no sin, there's no fallenness over there. Amen? And so... Through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus secured our eternal redemption and thus our eternal place in heaven. Right? For sure. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here on earth, God gives us the assurance of our eternal place in heaven. Is that so? Of course it's so. Let me say that again. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here on earth, God gives us the assurance of our eternal place in heaven. It's because when we receive salvation in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit who makes it possible for us to be born again, right? He makes redemption in Jesus an absolute thing in our lives, right? And He continues to do that our whole life here on earth, regardless of what we face, regardless of how much we mess up or don't mess up. He's the guarantee. He lets us know that, yes, you can expect a dwelling place in heaven with God because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do, what you don't do. So he's the one that testifies that. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said, I will receive you unto myself. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22. Watch this from the Amplified Translation. It is he who has also put his seal on us. That is, He has appropriated us and certified us as His and has given us the Holy Spirit 
in our hearts as a pledge, like a security deposit, to guarantee the fulfillment of His promise of eternal life. See? In other words, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is the one that is given to us. Not only to let us know that we are God's, not only to let us know that because we receive salvation in Jesus and because of redemption in Jesus, we have the guarantee of eternal life. We have the guarantee of an eternal dwelling in God's dwelling and we don't have to be concerned whether there'll be enough space or not. There is more than enough room, the one translation says, right? And so in John 14, Jesus was not talking about His second coming or as eventually, you know, <clears throat> um, enjoying some kind of property or anything like that. No. He was talking about the eternal certainty that we would have as believers in Him, a certainty that begins here and now. Amen. And isn't that the truth? For those of you who've been with us for a while and you understand gospel truth, I mean, regardless of what you go through in life, your down days, your good days, your lows, your highs, your mids, you know, this mood and that mood and that offense and not that offense and this mess up and that mess up and that's the good thing. Regardless of what we go through, our redemption is constant because it's not based on our merits or performance. It's based on what Jesus, what God has done for us in and through Jesus and the finished work of the cross, right? And it is that that guarantees our eternal place in heaven with God, fellowshipping with God, being in the presence of God. And that's what Jesus was conveying when He said that to His disciples. Aren't you glad about that? Amen. You see, Jesus was also not talking about having property in heaven. I mean, it just sounds silly. It sounds, what is the word, ludicrous? I don't know if that's the correct word for that, but we'll go with it. It sounds crazy. What, are we, what do we need mansions for in heaven? We're in the presence of God. There's no sun there because His glory just lights everything up. There's no bad weather. There's no need for privacy, for any weird things. I mean, why do we need a mansion? Why do we need a house? We don't. We are one with Him, and we are going to be in the very presence of the One who created us, our God. And we are going to be without sin, so there is no shame, there's no guilt, there's no need for there's no lack, there's nothing like that. Why would we need a mansion? To impress who? To do what? <laughs> I mean, it's just, like I said, ludicrous, silly to think like that. But that's essentially what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus was talking about the here and the now. And just in case we're not sure about that certainty, watch what Ephesians 2 verse 20 to 22 from the New Living says, because it confirms what I've shared with you as well with you today. Together, we are His house. You could say His dwelling place. And isn't that true? I mean, we as the church are God's dwelling house, dwelling place here on earth, because He's in each and every one of us. And so it's together we are His house, built on the foundation, in other words, built on the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets, referring to what they prophesied about Jesus, which the apostles shared with us. Notice, the law is excluded here. Right? 
And that's a different teaching altogether here. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Notice, not the law, but Christ Jesus himself. Verse 21. We are, notice, we are present ongoing sins. We are, tense, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. In other words, here on earth, we are the dwelling place of God, collectively and individually. But also in time to come, we are going to be in His dwelling because of Jesus and the finished work of the cross. Amen. Powerful, encouraging. I trust that this is blessing and encouraging you in some way. Amen. And so, to have a mansion in God's house means to have an eternal place in God's presence. I trust that you see that now. You are guaranteed of that. And you don't have to be concerned whether there'll be room for you. There's more than enough room. Mansion size is what Jesus used. Not in terms of actual size, but to paint the picture of how you don't have to be concerned whether you're going to be squeezed like a sardine, you know, amongst millions and trillions of saints trying to be in the presence of God. It's going to be spacious, free, luxurious, and you're going to enjoy the wonderful presence of God. You're guaranteed of that. That's what Jesus was saying. So ultimately, Jesus was giving His disciples and us, quite honestly, a message of comfort, of hope, and assurance of eternal dwelling and fellowship with God. Amen. That was the heart of what he conveyed. And that is the freeing truth about mansions in heaven. And I am so looking forward to that. Amen. I trust that you are. You know, we're going to, we're not even going to look back or think of this life because it's going to be gone and done. It is just going to be absolutely awesome. And you can look forward to that because of Jesus and the finished work of the cross. Aren't you glad that you somehow God found a way to get gospel truth to you? Aren't you glad that somehow God revealed these things to you so you can live in freedom and certainty? Amen. You know, in this life, we face so many things. People treat us differently based on what we have, what we don't have, who they think we are and who they think we're not. But you know, when it's all said and done, we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. And to God, we all have equal value. And in that way, We'll all have the wonderful, eternal, we can look forward at least to the wonderful, eternal experience of dwelling in the presence of God without interruption. Isn't that going to be awesome? Amen. All because of Jesus. Praise God. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at redemptioninjesus.com.